all these podcasts, all these other podcasts have done so kind of multi-platform. You know, they're doing like video content and graphics and they've got like different streams. That's not what people want. People just want just four white men talking about stuff <laughs> once a week fairly reliably that's, that's, why what people, they, that's what people want they have production teams would you believe they it's, have people yeah, working they for want, them it's time for like a retro podcast movement where the sound's a bit grainy it's all a bit kind of amateurish no one's very professional it kind of rolls on for like an hour and a half even though you don't want it to it's lots of random noises it sounds really echoey that's what people want in podcasts that we, we we need to corner that market it's what will make us stand out and finally hit four figure listen listener figures every week <laughs> i think we can we have provided uh, over a number of months and years now several of the things you just listed that is not yeah, an aspiration that is that is a box we are already ticking we're, we're less a podcast than more a, a lifestyle choice we are an accompaniment to runs and dog walks and that frankly is a life choice we're a family we're a family. This is the equivalent of a, a family email chain. We're the That's what this is. on the roast beef. Let's, well, just, look, let's just not beat around the bush. Hopefully we're not too far away from getting back to how it all started, which was basically an opportunity for us to get together and eat and drink a lot and just record us speaking for a while. I mean, that yeah. would be that would be my, my preference. I, d I do feel as though we've lost sight of the food element of this podcast. We're going to have to make up for it. Well, do you think we should start doing instead of doing? Because we're we're going to run out of football subjects eventually, aren't we? We're going to we're going to find that we're actually a little bit short on stuff to talk about. We'll start repeating ourselves. I think we ran start... out of football subjects about two yeah. years ago. Hugh, and, and uh, Rory, we also... we've been doing the same ones over and over again. Yeah, and we also started repeating ourselves about a hundred episodes ago as well. We we well we know. I do not think we. It kind of comes in waves, doesn't it? Like we we'll have little spells where we have like three weeks of really good fresh ideas, and then we just go back to the drudgery of we do another select eleven. <laughs> he says much. hot on the heels of our most recent Select 11. Look, oh, wait, come on. It's a, the, Select 11s are, are, are our equivalent of a clip of a, like a clip show. Do you know no, what I mean? No, no, no. This, this episode is our equivalent of a clip show. Right, strap in everyone. It's going to be a cracker. <laughs> this is oh, Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, better the devil you know, Rory Smith, better than revenge, and Annie Hinchcliffe, bitch better have my money. Um, <laughs> referring to the point that Rory just made a moment or two ago, the food is... Still haven't had my lunch. It's half past one, and I'm talking to you, you three, instead of instead of eating. I'm starting to feel a real kind of sense of languor settling on me. You're getting irritable. <laughs> I need my lunch. This what? is like the. I've never seen him like this. This what is my lunch. You? You're acting like Ross. a child. I want my lunch. He's like, I'm sick to. Oh God, another major international football tournament. We're still talking about football, and I've not eaten anything. Oh no, come on! I, I am not the only person on this Zoom call who is thoroughly sick of football. Um, well, you could speak for all of us, but at least two of us are very hungry. So you're absolutely. Well, what is your lunch going to be? I don't know. I'm, I'm at my parents', so it's it's whatever's provided, and that that also is is adding an element of stress to my existence at the moment. So I'm I'm not quite sure how well stocked my mum my mum's house is. It it used to be very well stocked. But to be honest, she's let she's she's let her standards slip recently. There's, really... no there's no biscuits. I arrived and there were no biscuits. What's going on? Katie started doing the Hello Fresh thing, which is great for meal times. But the problem is, is that you stop going to the supermarket, so there's no actual extra food just kicking around that you can even make something on toast with. So, so you, should only, you should only have three meals a day. You don't need to be eating in between meals. No, you see, I'm I'm from a family of grazers, Chinch. Yeah, but Chinch, I'm talking about just Nonsense. something for lunch. 
Yeah, have, yeah, fair enough. Breakfast yeah, yeah. Breakfast and something for dinner. But yeah, when you fine. sort of open the fridge, oh, I wonder what I'll have for lunch. It's bare. The cupboards are bare. Unbelievable. This is this is this is classic podcast territory. This is yeah. this is middle class people complaining about things that are very minor problems. I think this is this is very much our level. I'm happy. I'm happy again. Now. <laughs> You're happy that we've gone back to our roots now. That's yeah. it. I'm very very pleased for you at least, Rory. The rest of us remain hungry. Uh, Chinch, the football is Chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Is it a veritable potpourri of subjects? You're absolutely right, it is. In a move that screams mid-tournament timeless filler, we have (laughs) a mailbag episode. Although it's not one that fields questions like, which one of you would survive longest on a desert island? Not Chinch. Or who would win in a fight? Definitely Chinch. But instead, an episode that deals with some of the subjects you've written in to suggest over the years that we've either been too disorganised to get round to, or more likely I completely forgot about. Can we afford to burn this content? Uh, yes, because there are several. In fact, their numbers at least a hundred more. So oh, okay, I think fine. we're okay. Uh, so that's all to come. Get in touch with the podcast with your podcast suggestions uh, at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We have one suitably placed email today. It comes from Jack Gunther in Princeton, New Jersey. Dear Marouane, Axel, David Luis, and Matteo. The most recent iteration of the SPM Manscaped adver- advertisement starring Marrow and Fellaini's flowing locks reduced me to such laughter in the gym that even Joao could not have refocused me. <laughs> Imagine my surprise then listening to a different football podcast with much worse squirrel chat and far less handsome hosts to learn that Marrow and Fellaini's bush is copy provided by Manscaped. I was certain the genius behind Jack Reachcliffe had struck again. <laughs> and now I don't know what is real. <laughs> So please allow me to humbly submit this set-piece menu-specific Manscaped advertising copy. Gentlemen, are you tired of having your misters in a twister? It's time to trim the grass and play the passing game with the Manscaped Performance Package 3.0 and Peak Hygiene Plan. Alternatively, listener, has the long winter got your porridge with two fruits looking past its best? Well, spring is here. And with it, the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. I don't much care for kiwi fruit, but yours will thank you. Uh, There is no substitute for Manscaped. The only way to find the top corner hard and fast and smooth is with Manscaped's (laughs) Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant. Don't let Mikhail Deansky get you down. And finally, welcome to Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends forgot that discussions of food don't pair well with advertisements for undercarriage trimmers, even once as superb as Manscaped. From now on, we'll stick with the Manscaped Weed Whacker Electric Nose Hair Trimmer just to be safe. I really hope no one else has done this yet, says Jack. I don't think so. If not, Manscaped royalties can be mailed to me in Princeton, New Jersey, which uh, will take us now back to the four that he uh, introduced us as. Do you remember? So Marouane is obvious. Uh, can you see that Axel, David Luiz and Matteo all have the kind of hair that might be subjected in the same way that they suggested Alaney's was uh, to a bit of a trim? Who's Matteo? Uh, Gwen Doozy. Uh, oh, I'd forgotten about him. So Axel Witzel and Matteo Gwen Now, Jack. Only you can decide if what you've suggested is better than the Euros are all about bragging rights and showing pride for your country's squad. With the help of our sponsor Manscaped, you will definitely be showing pride in your squad. With Manscaped, you can now trim up your personal pitch without the fear of whacking your bollocks. Unlock that confidence and join the movement with this exclusive offer for you. 20% 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code SPM at manscaped.com. The lawnmower 3.0 is the John Terry of Dong. 
Sorry, <laughs> that's hilarious. That's we're going to keep that in. The lawnmower 3.0 is the John Terry of dong defense because <laughs> very different, very different. Because the third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin safe technology. There's even waterproof technology and an LED light so you can groom in the shower. We all know how terrible that cleanup can be. If you've been held back from nose hairs before, we have a perfect solution for you: the weed whacker. Ear and nose hair trimmer. This trimmer has the same Manscaped proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs in your nose holes. 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. Imagine if your significant other started growing some nasty nose hairs. Pretty sure you wouldn't be too keen either. Also, check out the Manscaped website for some cool products, including their cologne and foot duster foot deodorant, which is what you need for your stinky football bag. Uh, that's bag containing football boots, not a different kind of bag, which you would imagine would be very much part of the Manscaped conversation. Get 20% off and free shipping for your order with the code SPM at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code SPM. It's time you add a few inches to your Harry Kane with Manscaped. Oh, God. Unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, Jack, if you want to change any of that copy, let me know and send it. Now, we get a lot of emails here at Set Piece Many that I've mentioned before. Receive a red flag if they are a suitable subject suggestion. As incongruous as that sounds, it is meant to help me pick them out from the crowd. So it is therefore even more to my great embarrassment that we don't get round to them as quickly or as often as we'd like. This week's pod is a chance to rectify that, albeit partially, and for more than 150 of you, to your eventual dissatisfaction as you remain on the cutting room floor. It's a kind of mailbag episode with relatively sensible questions posed over the years by you. If it works, we'll do it again when we're either out of ideas or we don't presume that our ideas are better than yours. Uh, so I thought we'd start by going back to the very first email after the red flag system was introduced. It's from Amadeep Singh in January 2018. His references will make that clear, but the subject at least still has contemporaneous relevance. Hello, podcasters. Happy New Year. I wanted to suggest a new topic for podcast discussion. A few years ago, it was suggested that Brussels-born Adnan Yanazai might qualify for an international career representing England. Jack Wilshire made a less than enlightened comment in response to the suggestion. The English rugby and cricket sides have taken advantage of increased global movement to pick star players born overseas. Why hasn't English football done the same? Isn't it time that we looked at things like nationality in football as being fluid? Thanks. That's from Amadeep Singh in January 2018. I hope he's still listening. It's a good question. It's And it's probably more relevant now than it was even in January 2018. So Amadeep <laughs> was clearly ahead of the curve because more and more players are are of, I guess, fluid nationality. That You know, they, they are born to parents who... Uh, maybe one parent's from one place and another parent's from another place and they're born in a third country or they've, they've moved when they were young or all the many and varied reasons why you can change nationality. And I think it will make it more challenging in the years to come for players to be absolutely certain who they want to play for and for countries to to kind of know who their pool is effectively. But then I can't, I can't remember who it was, um, who I read the quote from not long ago, who said, it might have been Lucas Nemecha, who played, at, that's his surname being butchered, who played at Man City and I think he's now at Anderlecht who was eligible for England, but was born to German parents. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so, so doesn't have, as he put it, doesn't have any English in him. He is, he is by, by, by birth, he might be English. I'm not exactly sure where he was born, but he, you know, his, his ancestry is German. So he always knew he wanted to play for Germany. And I think for most players, 
they have a sense of what they feel, just as all of us have a sense of, of what nationality we feel. And that, I, th I think, is what is what will come to define it. But if you look at the squads for the Euros, there's an... Miguel Delaney did a piece on this in The Independent. There's a lot of players who are eligible for more than for more than one team, not least the two players in the England team who are eligible for Ireland. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because since that email was sent, obviously Jack Grealish and Declan Rice, both within the, the youth system for Ireland, uh, are now playing for England. I'm Rick Laporte, switched to Spain, having played his entire footballing career prior to reaching Manchester City uh, in Spain and being Basque and having that connection with Northern Spain, even though he's French by birth. So there, there are understandable connections with all those three, but they moved and they moved rather more smoothly than perhaps conversations around that in the past. And as soon as Laporte changed, he was in the Spain squad and he's playing for Spain in their starting 11 uh, for this competition. So I wonder if since Amadeep sent that in, the process has not only become smoother, but we're less... Uh, it's less of a conversation topic because also the, the the regulations have been relaxed certainly since a generation ago whereas if you played any friendly for example for the under 21s that's it you're you are dedicated then to that country but it's been relaxed to the extent that it's only in uh, it's only competitive internationals now which helps obviously young players formulate a plan in the future should they want to think about potentially changing was there a thing about Letizia? at one point that Letizia could have played for France. He could have yeah. done because he is from Guernsey, yes. And he, there was a, certainly a point where he'd only played friendlies for England. And obviously he, he ended up playing competitive fixtures, yeah. I think, but at, certain, yeah. at one point he, he had only played X number of friendlies and there was some concern or interest in whether he might actually declare for France. And it could have been Graham so as well for the same reason, for yeah. the same geographical reason. Mm. But I mean, Graham Lasseau was never getting in ahead of Bichente Lizarazu, was he? I mean, I, I like Graham Lasseau a lot, but come on. I mean, he was lucky to get in ahead of Andy Hinchcliffe. Yeah, he was. But that was only because of thigh, thigh injury. Thigh injury. Change, mm -hmm. did you have declared for anybody else? Uh, yes, I could have. I could have played for. It's like essentially you're saying that. What, what nationality do you feel? Or because I'm wondering about again the the players' reasons for for maybe choosing the countries that they choose to play for. A lot of it might be, well, I feel like with Nemecha, he, he he feels in essence German, German, so I'm going to play for Germany. So it's no real surprise when he plays for England at youth level, but then he ends up playing for Germany under 21 level or maybe senior level as well. Or whether you see the options that you have available and think, well, there's a possibility there that I could, if I declared for that country, I could play a lot more games. Because I could have played for Scotland because my mum was Scottish. My dad was English. I was born in England. I could have played for Scotland. But once you play at under 21 level, that's it. It's all sorted for you. But yeah, if I suppose looking back, but I, I never, ever felt, even though I am quite thrifty, I don't feel Scottish. <laughs> and I was closer to my mum than my dad, but I still always considered myself English. So I, I never, ever, I was never approached, which is slightly worrying, isn't it? Because normally... Yeah, Tom Boyd approach who can play for us doesn't matter who you are is there a possible I was never approached by Scotland even the, the possibility of so well, whether they maybe, didn't know or thought I was know. so poor they didn't even though Scottish football was pretty bad at the time they still didn't want me which is slightly well, they, weird. but I've always felt English so I naturally I would I would want to play for England they, they did have Tom Boyd so they didn't need you um, yeah, that, yeah that's true that's true the, but also I suspect they, they just didn't know the difference now might well, be that the difference now might be that that countries are, especially smaller countries by population, are hyper aware of everyone's potential connection. But I guess even then, you probably have to make you know if you've got a Scott, if you're a, a a good standard Premier League player who seems to be English on the surface, you know, wears a singlet in the summer, mm. uh, pale, yeah, uh, sounds dim, English, all that bit stuff, dim, bit dim. 
yeah. constantly topless at, at the slightest drop of a hat, yeah. um, then they'll, they'll just assume you're English. So I, I guess you maybe have to make overtures to them or at least let it be known that you're, you're, you have Scottish or Irish or Welsh lineage or whatever. And that's how they find out. I think Eunice Moose is a, a really interesting example. So Eunice Moose's parents are both Ghanaian and he grew up in England. So the two choices he really logically should have had a Ghana and an England and he played I think he played for all of England's age group teams but because he was born in America when his mum was on holiday there he's eligible for the states and he chose the US I think at the age of 17 he chose to represent the US which to me is like he's got every right to play for America but it's he's not his presence is not a triumph of of the American you know the American developmental system and it's not it's not proof I don't know, it's almost not a fair representation of of the state of American soccer, which is what your your national team maybe should should be. Does Eunice Musa is not is not really by any particular metric that you would you would normally expect American. It's strange that he feels American simply by virtue of having been Yeah, born. but he maybe maybe does he really feel American? He's eligible, of course he is, by what's happened to him. But if he maybe feels I'm not gonna get called up by England at senior level at Ghana, so if the Americans again want me to play for them and I do qualify, then is that again, well, yeah. you might as well, because then again, you played international football and again, you're a good player. It's not they're just getting anybody to play for. You have to be eligible and good enough. So again, it, yeah, I just think again, it's not necessarily the nationality you feel, it's the opportunity you feel you have to take. And also it's possible that because Eunice Moosen has always known he was born in New York, that he might, that that side, that part of his identity, which is, which is real and true, might always have been really special to him. It might, it might have been the thing that he kind of, that that made him stand out that you know it, it's interesting that he was born in new york that's a strange thing to happen to a kid who's not from america mm. so it's and um, you're a citizen aren't you if you're born if you're you, born in the states you are you a are automatically a u.s citizen and that may well be a really important part of, of his identity that might be why he, he made that do you know anybody who does any work in america that we can maybe find out maybe his motivation no, anybody's no. come to mind what a new no. york-based publication yeah something. drill a bit deeper and really get to the get to the answer to this can't yeah. think of it no, no can't think of anyone no. just because rory's no. rory's no. work lands in america it doesn't mean that unfortunately he is a US citizen. Yeah, yeah. Not yet. <laughs> uh, Jamal Musiala is another interesting example of, of what you feel and being a, a consequence of the decision that you reach. A British Nigerian father, a German mother, born in Stuttgart, grew up in England, went to school in England, initially came through Chelsea's academy, ends up in Bayern's academy, doing brilliantly for them now. England made very, very strong overtures for him to represent them at national team level, but he's chosen Germany because that is what he feels. But I wonder whether, and I don't necessarily mean him particularly from this point of view, but is there also the the cynicism that comes with in making that choice, as well as, as Chinch has just alluded to, who am I most likely to get the opportunity to represent? But if you're really good, who am I most likely to be successful with if you are have if you are fortunate enough to have those options available to you obviously you don't want cynicism either on, on behalf of the player who wants to play for a country either he's going to play for or going to win with but you also don't want cynicism from national organizations going into root out somebody and to try and convince them against what they would genuinely want to do to get them to play for them that that is a little cynical uh, thank you very much indeed to Amadeep for the first of our mailbag questions that was from two and a half years ago uh, that was from three and a half years ago. 
<laughs> just feels like two and a half years ago. We'll keep that. That's another edit we're going to keep in. Um, I'm now going to combine two emails from 2019. This is from Andrew Misra. Hello, Set Piece Menu. I'm Andrew, a medium-term listener of the pod, hopefully now long-term listener of the pod. The inception of my listening was circa episode 62, but I've back-listened to several older episodes since. I'm a trainee broadcast journalist at Sheffield University. Congratulations on your graduation, Andrew. Looking to progress in sports journalism. My idea for the show is two-footed footballers. As far as I can see, could be wrong. It hasn't been covered thus far in the SPM journey and indeed since. Andrew, very few such players exist with Santi Cathola being the main active, genuinely two-footed player. This is, I imagine he was still playing for Arsenal at this time, or still injured playing for Arsenal. This isn't entirely surprising considered that only 1% of the general population are ambidextrous. There are also many highly successful players who are very one-footed, such as Arjen Robin. Perhaps Chinch could offer some insight about players he has played with who are two-footed and how highly regarded being able to use both feet is as an asset. That's from Andrew Misra. And Jake Cunnington has also emailed on this subject. Hello, guys. One point I have made to anyone who I've watched football with over the recent years, much of their chagrin, is my disbelief that so many players at any level, but especially greats at the top level, do not have the ability to use their weak foot very effectively in many situations. Why is it accepted that a top-class player who has a chance to score makes key pass or do something else important or indeed more trivial, like a clearance, simply has to manufacture some space to get the ball onto their stronger foot, usually, in reality, their only foot, as their weaker one is so poor, in order to have a chance of succeeding in that scenario. Am I going mad? Or do you guys agree that having your group of players improve by even a small amount on their weak foot would give the players and therefore the team an advantage in many situations? Not only would it give each player a better chance at succeeding at actions on the pitch it would also make attacking players far harder to read and show onto their weak side for example i also know this is possible from personal experience as i dedicated a few months to using my swinger as much as possible whilst being coached by glenn hoddle it says here on international <laughs> yeah. duty no he doesn't say that he doesn't say that whilst i was playing at a low level a few years ago and it became <laughs> passable for me and i've got the athleticism of Bandor and the natural footballing ability of Andy Hinchcliffe. So that's uh, from Jake Cunnington. So we have heard the story and Jake would have also heard the story about uh, Glenn Hoddle attempting to do the same with you, Chinch. So mm. um, he was doing that despite, I would imagine, all evidence to the contrary suggesting it was not a good idea. But is it, is it, is it something that was normal for, for a coach to try and work on a weaker foot at that level? I, I had 16 glittering years as a professional and that session Genuinely, that session with Glenn Hoddle was the only session that I worked on my weaker foot. And I can't remember watching any other sessions with other players working on their weak. It just, even today, I don't think it, it's, maybe they, maybe they do. But again, watching the game and watching players, you still in commentary, how many times we say it's on their weaker foot and they just, it just doesn't look natural, doesn't look like they do any work on it. So whether it, surely you'd think there would be more and more sessions from modern coaches to, to try and balance players. It's never going to be. It's, I think probably Gazza and Paul and Paolo Di Canio were the two players that I would say, if you threw them a ball, it, it, they didn't try to adjust their body to control it with their strong foot. They, they didn't have a stronger foot because they were so well balanced. And it was just, whether that's just a natural instinct, I don't know. But it is it is really rare. And maybe it is, is it under, understandable that if you do have a, a stronger side, that, that naturally that is going to just be how you play and actually developing it. And if you don't need to, and if you are so strong with with one foot as i was then you really don't need to work or you don't feel that you need to do because i can basically with the outside of my left foot i'm much better than i would be with any part of my right foot so I, I i didn't feel i needed to work on it and also maybe coaches at that time felt this this is just it's just a left-footed left back and they don't even think about 
doing the work with you but maybe again we can we can try and find out whether that is and surely you would think that that has to be a development for for coaching and for players to have the ability to yes use both feet and that would then enable you to be more versatile and probably play a few different positions do you think chinch as a as a left footer or left-footed players would be less likely to be encouraged to be yes. ambi pedal because yeah. of it being ambi such... what sorry ambi pedal ambi pedal if it's feet is ambi pedal ambi pedal yeah. Oh, yeah excellent yeah yeah carry um, on that because it's seen as being such an asset yeah that the, the idea that you would even need to kick the ball with your with your right foot would be seen as not really necessary because we want you to do the thing that a majority of the players can't do anyway yeah. which is yeah. overlapping on the left hand side or mm -hmm. i and robin style cutting in yeah. from the right hand side whereas so but for predominantly right-footed players it would be much more useful i think phil phil foden's a good current example of of someone who's pretty strong on both feet and i think um erling Haaland hits the ball he's got a cannon in both feet <laughs> <laughs> a twin cannon but it, 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 interesting that both um the guys who emailed and steve mentioned Arjen robin because riyad Mahrez is another player who is known for that cut in from the right hand side and then shoot with your left foot you know it's coming but he has genuinely i don't know whether he's worked on it he's been told to at least increase the mystery for a defender he has been working on trying to then do the double turn and go back onto his right foot and shoot albeit with a swinger but he is getting better and better and if you look at the goals that he scored over the course of the last 18 months two years more and more of a percentage or higher percentage of that has been with his right foot so there is at least an example of somebody who is very very one-footed at least being encouraged technically maybe but tactically definitely to try and provide some sort of mystery because otherwise it's like the iron iron robin thing you know what he's going to do and quite a lot of the time he still did it and was successful at doing it but eventually you're going to come up against somebody who's able to stop it happening uh micah richards who played against iron robin said that the thing that made him so difficult was that was the speed with which he would chop yeah so you knew you knew what he was doing but because he could shift his body so fast in both directions he would eventually knock you off balance so it's i did a piece ages ago on 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 the when robin retired or initially retired before he went back to play for Groningen, about the fact that he basically built an entire career that had lasted 15 years on having one trick and even at the end even after 15 years of signaling that that's what he was going to do it was effectively it was just as effective as it had been at the start and it's because although he only had a left foot. The speed, the speed with which he shifted his weight meant that defenders couldn't really do anything about him getting past them anyway. So I, I think in certain circumstances, it's probably not that damaging as long as if you have that mastery of your, of your one foot or your one trick, you can still reach the top level. But it did always annoy my dad that Ryan Gibbs, in the course of his 60-year professional career, <laughs> that nobody thought to tell him, Ryan, do you fancy having a go on your right foot? And my dad found that astonishing that there hadn't been that level of work put into Gibbs' right foot because you could, you could get your swinger to, to a level where, whereby it is a it is a fairly effective weapon, even Didn't... if it's ne never quite as strong as your, your natural foot. When I'm you say sure swinger, right. swinger, you are talking about your weaker foot. Weaker foot, yeah, <laughs> rather than you mean weaker rather... foot, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Didn't Ryan Giggs miss an open goal with his right foot? I think Ryan Giggs in that 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 game, it was a, an FA Cup fifth round game, I think, against Arsenal, the game after which there was the boot incident. I'm pretty sure that Ryan Giggs was edge of the box, open goal, and he either hit the bar or hit it over the bar uh, with his right foot. So perhaps uh, 
use that as evidence to the contrary for your father, should he uh, require any. I can offer some insight, perhaps, as to why young players aren't encouraged to use their weaker foot. Because anybody who tries to get either Rory or George, my children, to use their left foot and the ensuing tantrum that <laughs> comes about. Is that, is that what happened with Chinch and Glenn Hoddle? No, 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 I don't want to use my right foot, Glenn. I've got a good left foot. You're going to use your right foot, young man. I don't want... Right, go in. Go in. You're not playing for England again. Exactly. You either send them in or you just give up. And by the time that they stop having tantrums about using their weaker foot, their stronger foot is so far ahead anyway that it's not going to catch up. But do you, do you find, this is the final observation, do you not find it strange when you think about, like, I can envisage kicking a ball with my right foot, and I can envisage kicking a ball with my left foot, but the, sense, the, the way that, the, hmm. that you, you imagine the feeling is completely different. Like my, my right foot will, and I'm not talented, but my right foot can do things that I just... I can't make my left foot do it. It's really exactly. weird. It's weird. really weird. I, I, I couldn't I, get my body in the right when yeah. Glenn was saying, right, 30 yard past left foot, ping. Do that with your right foot. I can't get my hips to work. How do you, how do you swing? Fall your, over. I can't do it. It was completely ridiculous and embarrassing. It's, I think it, it, someone mentioned instinct earlier, and I think that's it. Because I think if, if I was given time, if I was asked to kick the ball with my right foot and then with my left foot, I'm fairly sure I could kick it pretty much as hard with my left foot, but the, the process I would have to go through in order to make that happen means that I've not only been closed down and tackled by the time I get to it, but they've already gone down the other end of sport. So it really isn't worth worrying about. But it's the thought, isn't it? Like you have to, like to, to, to kick a ball with your stronger foot, you don't have to think at all, no exactly. matter how bad a player you are. You don't it's have to think about it. Think, yeah. Whereas when you, when you try and think, right, how do I kick that? I'm going to kick this ball with my left foot. <laughs> yeah. And you actually have to be like, right, so the, the hip comes back and then, I, <laughs> then I, I, I cocked the knee and then I make my foot open like that and I go, whoosh, I'm acting it out. I'm going to all the way around the ball just to make sure I'm <laughs> in the right place. Like an offhand forehand in tennis. My, my reason for being right-footed, given that I'm left-handed, is that because I'm deaf in my right ear, I want everything to be to my left-hand side. All humans, to be to, to, for me to be able to hear, hear them, and everything feels comfortable on my left-hand side. I don't want anything to my right-hand side because I can't hear it. I don't kind of recognise that it's there. It's why I played right-back or right-wing when, when I was a kid playing kid football, and because I wanted to kick everything to the left because I just simply didn't compute anything being on my right-hand side. I was definitely mm -hmm. the age of two. So that's So you could hear the abuse right for the misplaced pass. You, <laughs> yes. you, wanted, you wanted it to go in the direction so that you could hear the criticism. And Excellent. none of the encouragement from the touchline. Uh, thank you to Jake and to Andrew for, for those combined questions. John, Josh Hansen has this from February 2019. Hi, chaps. I've only been a listener for a short while. I hope you're still with us, Josh. Uh, drawn in by Rory's remarkably well-reasoned monologues. Do you get to practice these beforehand? He asks. That's no. not a question. Thank God, no. no. My question for the pod is this. Which actions slash moments slash decisions, etc., in a football match frustrate you personally without being illegal, but should be worthy of an Ooh. irritation booking? For me, it would have to be a misplaced pass in a promising counter-attack. I find myself silently fuming as a pass is over or under hit, sometimes even when it's the opposing team's counter. I also have a pet peeve of forwards giving defenders the option of going down when they're shielding the ball facing their own goal or the touchline. So that is from Josh Hansen, uh, who's in London. Irritation yellow cards, things that annoy you personally that aren't against the rules, but you want to see punished. I think shepherding out the. I think shepherding the ball out of play. Oh, that was mine! How dare you! Yeah, it's really is ridiculous. Is is should should be a foul. 
If you, if yeah, if you wouldn't be able to do that anywhere else on the field. It's obstruction to remain it? that far away from the ball without playing it whilst holding off an opponent. Mm. That should definitely be a free kick, and. Yes, I think it's not. It's not in the spirit of the game. The idea of the game is to keep the ball in play and make stuff happen, not just to kind of stand there with your with your arse sticking out to make sure that it runs out of play really slowly. It's just wait. It's just dead time. Booked them. Booked them for doing it. In fact, if if there's a tackle on the halfway and and a player clearly plays the player and not the ball, we always say he's not playing the ball. He's playing the man. Well, when you're shepherding the ball out, you're playing the man, not the ball. So how is it any different? One's a foul. That's obstruction, isn't it? It's stopping a player get to the. But I just I've never understood that how that's acceptable. I think in the in the stre- I think when I was growing up in that the West Yorkshire must have come under some sort of different type of footballing rules than the rest of the world. There must have been some sort of it's the sort of thing that would happen in Yorkshire where they decided that they didn't like certain elements of it. So I'm pretty sure that when I was a kid, we were told you're not allowed to shepherd the ball out of play, and I'm also sure that when when I was a kid, we were told that if you had lost control of the ball it couldn't be a penalty. So you, you're trying to run it. If you, if, you know, the, you, you see them quite often now where the players run into the touchline and they're very clearly not going to get to the ball. The ball is moving too fast for them to, ca- to catch it. Yes. And yes. The, keep, the keeper slides out and mis- mistimes it, arm catches yeah. the player's leg, play goes over, penalty. And everyone knows, oh yeah, yeah, clear penalty. There is part of my brain that thinks that shouldn't be a penalty because that player was not getting to the ball. No, we definitely had a similar thing. I'm absolutely convinced. Even even when I was able to talk about doing doing the referee training in my my mid teens, that there was a certain kind of nod nod wink wink. If if they're not getting to the ball, then it's not penalty, unless yeah. it's like a ser- serious foul play, all bets are off. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that would. I genuinely, I think that would be better. The thing that I would like to see immediately punished with either derision or indeed an irritation yellow card is when a breaking team, but also just a team, but particularly it happens when you're breaking, uh, you have a two on one and you cannot get the pass through to the to the free man. It's the most annoying thing. You're two on one. The single defender is chasing back completely off balance and you still can't find the pass. That is so annoying. It depends on the context, though. There was one... Acres of space. A, well, so there was one a couple of years ago, and I can't, I can't remember the exact game. Someone will, will, someone will be able to, to conjure it from their memory. When Virgil van Dijk was the one defender in a two-on-one. Yes, I remember this. And he shut, the way he shut the angles down to force the player to shoot on his weaker foot uniting the concepts of this, of this of the last 10 minutes was masterful i can't remember who it was against but it was a relatively big liverpool game and it was a it was a brilliant piece of kind of spatial awareness defending so I, other than that context yes i agree with you can, can i just want to bring a little one it's not you, you won't be yellow carded for this but footballers professional footballers if a ball is passed to you and it rolls underneath your foot and importantly goes out of play the opposition captain should be allowed to come over and slap your face. <laughs> because as professional players, that should not happen. At international level, two slaps. One right, one left. Uh, Chinch, thank you very much indeed for the most sensible suggestion of all of them. That was from mm-hmm. Josh. Thank you, Josh. Uh, now, right up to date from James Flinton now, who has emailed before asking us to do a deep dive on his team Sheffield Wednesday, which required too much work, so it was red flagged and then completely forgotten. Didn't get a different flag for the forgotten one. Uh, but this time, James admits that there is something less trifling to consider. 
The horrific, heart-rendering scenes from Copenhagen on Saturday afternoon, he writes, uh, just following the incident surrounding Christian Eriksen, moves me to email. As a Sheffield Wednesday fan, I've always been all too aware of how things at a football match can go drastically wrong. And sadly, football contains many moments of human tragedy. Ibrox, Bradford, Heysel, Hillsborough, Fabrice Mwamba, Miklos Fair, just to name just a few. During the match and throughout the seemingly unimportant Belgium-Russia game that followed, I began considering the roles played in this most human of potential tragedies. How would the fans react? How would the players react? How on earth do you commentate on that? How did Gary Lineker, Micah Richards, Cesc Fabregas and Alex Scott, who were part of the BBC coverage for our international listeners, manage to maintain a modicum of composure? How the hell do you referee that? But seriously, how do you get back on and play? So the question I suppose I want to pose is, what happens when there is human tragedy in football in terms of the reaction of the aforementioned different groups and can we ever learn from it? So I think we can understand at least the part that the players, the fans and the broadcasters uh, played in that. I was broadcasting on that Saturday afternoon for the BBC as well. Um, but Chinch, has anything like that happened to you from a player's perspective? Yes, there was a game, uh, a Man City game, first team game, when Paul Lake, who was a fabulous midfield player, his career was ended uh, with a really serious, serious knee injury. He swallowed his tongue after a, um, a collision as he went for a header and he, he landed awkwardly and swallowed his tongue. And it was Again, it was that's where the Ericsson situation because I was I was watching that game. I was waiting to do the the Belgium Russia game later on, and it was honestly it was absolutely appalling. But that's that's the only thing I've ever seen on a football pitch where you do start to think that that people could lose their lives, and that was horrendous. Again, the medical staff were incredible; they got it all sorted out. But again, you see the powerlessness, and you see the, those Danish players, their reaction, the fans' reaction. It, you clearly knew very quickly that something was seriously wrong. But that that was the closest I've ever I've ever come to something like that in training or in games. When that happened to Paul Lake, it was truly, truly frightening. Because Simon Kier, didn't he clear the airwaves mm. of Christian Eriksen, understanding yeah. that there might have been a possibility that he had yeah. swallowed his tongue? Didn't, I seem to remember Lee Chapman. Didn't Lee Chapman swallow his tongue in a match, uh, playing, I think, for Leeds back in the early 90s mm. as well? And there's the, the kind of awareness that as a result of what happened to Fabrice Moamba, which was mentioned in the email, that, that there is such a greater awareness and also better facilities available to these people that that might have in of itself saved Christian Eriksen's life because Simon Kier knew about the possibility of swallowing the tongue, put him in the recovery position, cleared his airways and then of course the defibrillator was on hand. You would imagine that it would be normally at a major competition but mm. still having those things there as a basic requirement now is something that clearly will help people like Christian Eriksen. Simon Kier obviously had an awareness not only of what was going on but some basic understanding of how to react and how to deal with that situation. And it does make you wonder whether that is something that should be formalised within sport mm. at, 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 at all levels, ideally, but certainly at the elite level. Because you think you go into any place of work pretty much and there is a list on the wall of who the staff first aiders are, who the duty first aiders are in, in the BBC building where Hugh and I work. The, the first aiders even have a different colour lanyard so they can be quickly identified. And, and I guess it would be appropriate for something like that in, in sport as well, so that at least one or two players on the field at any given time will have an awareness of how to deal with that sort I, of thing. I think having the awareness, Steve, is one thing, but actually knowing that you need to put that into practice, because hmm. you just presume, well, I, I've got this knowledge, but it's never going to happen, never going to happen. And then to, for him to react as quickly as he did, knowing that something was wrong, that was the amazing thing. Hmm. And I think it played a huge part in, in Ericsson being, and then getting the medical staff on to, hmm. to treat him. But I think, yeah, having the knowledge is one thing, but then thinking, I need to use it now. Yeah. And if I don't use it now, we've got big problems here. So it was really impressive. 
uh, from a broadcast point of view, quite rightly, those people who presented on the BBC were, were, were excellent in their delivery of their skills. But the fact is, you're not delivering your skills, you're being a human being and you're reacting to it. So one of the, the kind of weird uh, privileges of working in a building where you have access to all the possible um, broadcast angles and feeds, you are privy to not necessarily that it helps you, but you are privy to a lot more than what was being shown. Now, some people criticise the BBC for the amount they showed because they stuck with the world feed who who put out the kind of shots that perhaps if the BBC were directing the game, they wouldn't have included. And they did apologise for it when they came back on air a little bit later on. But just from a personal perspective, you, you you are dealing with the information as it's coming in and you are reacting in a in a human way because you are attempting to digest the information yourself and then bring it in a uh, hopefully a clear way to the audience. And actually that to an extent is much easier to do than quite a lot of other situations where you have choices, you have options, you have to think about what you're going to say. It's a very honest reaction. I think that's what came across on the BBC broadcast. There's been an awful lot of deserved praise for for Gary Lineker and the panel and the the sensitivity with which they dealt with that situation but I think also and I'm sorry for the commentators union piece here but but Jonathan Pierce for UK viewers uh, Steve Banyard was doing the job for the world feed I know Derek Ray was doing it in the states for ESPN those are incredibly testing moments for for a commentator who is having to deal with that situation in real time and to react with sensitivity, not to speculate, but try and find the right words to guide an audience through something that, because the audience isn't necessarily watching the game with the same intensity. I certainly wasn't until I became aware that something serious had happened. So Jonathan Pierce and others doing that job all around the world, I think, deserve great credit for the sensitivity with which and they... I, I went and spoke, actually, to Steve Banyard because he was, he was doing the game as I was watching it in the gallery, and I went to speak to him because, again, I understood how incredibly difficult and, and traumatic it is to try and, again, put... put well, you can't put words to this, but you've got to try your best until eventually you're told that we're, we're going to shut this down for a period of time. And I went to speak to him just to say, are you OK? Tony DiRigo was the co-commentator, mm. just to make... Because it is... It's awful for everybody, absolutely. But when you're working on this, and he was saying to me, I just hope I said the right thing. I said, absolutely, you did. I was listening to everything you did. You weren't speculating. You weren't saying something you didn't know. I thought he did incredibly well. But I just wanted to make sure he was okay because he had to wait and then go back on and, and commentate on the game when they restarted. That was a question I was going to ask about the restarting of the game. Were you surprised that they, they carried on playing? The two elements of controversy that have kind of grated with me a little bit because ultimately it, it was a terrible thing that happened. And there is in the aftermath, you are dealing with humans make, trying to make difficult choices in, in incredibly challenging circumstances where their main concern for every on the on, on behalf of everybody would have been what has happened to Christian Erickson. Is Christian Erickson okay? I think that there's been a there's been a tendency to kind of cast UEFA as as greedy or craven or venal for making them play. But I can, to be honest, I can understand how UEFA in that in that moment thought, right, well, look, we do also have a practical problem that what do we do about this? You can't just not play the game. You'd, you'd have to play it at some point if you want the tournament to work and UEFA are trying to run a tournament. And the other thing is on the is on the BBC's decision to to keep showing the pictures, which they've, they've all come out and apologised for. It's not easy to watch. 
and there is an there is an issue around privacy and around dignity and around broadcasting distressing images but at the same time effectively it becomes a news channel at that stage and and it ha there is a journalistic imperative to tell people what is happening so i can understand why the bbc there would have been part of the people the producers on the gallery doing that game thinking well and you can say look they should they should have cut to a wide shot of the stadium which i think is what they did in denmark and that's probably that's probably the right call but again you're dealing with humans making incredibly difficult choices in incredibly difficult circumstances and i think that we should we should remember that when look there was loads i, I saw someone pick out loads of tweets after the the england croatia game asking saying what a disgrace the bbc were for not sorting out the shadow on the pitch now i mean that's that's that is a genuine issue that why why on earth they built wembley at such an angle that you get a shadow on the pitch when you kick a game off in the middle of the afternoon which is when football traditionally happens genuine thing asking the bbc to move the sun probably a bit much to be perfectly honest but i think we 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 are too quick to assume that there is someone to blame for everything when the, yeah. the the majority of the time you have people making incredibly difficult choices on tv in real time and we should we should always remember that 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 should be taken into mitigation when we criticize and, and a lot of the people that even once they'd accepted that the bbc was not producing the game it was being produced and directed locally by danish broadcasters saying they should have cut back to the studio clearly feel as though the process of cutting back to the studio is more straightforward than the operation of their own remote control uh, and also some of the people that complain will also have been using twitter as a medium to complain whilst also scrolling through their timeline looking for content that the, the tv cameras weren't picking out through those decency standards uh, that we just uh, spoken about so thank you uh, to james for that uh, very thoughtful email and finally lauren brock just from April this year. Hi guys, I'll start by saying great work, love the show. As a new listener, I've been working through the back catalogue and while listening to elite players who have become elite managers, which was SBM191, I was pleasantly surprised when y'all stumbled into a discussion I've been curious about for years. While talking about which positions are better or perceived as better suited to a transition into coaching, you began discussing the kind of people who often inhabit those positions. I've often wondered how the psychology of each position affects the players who play them. For example, is a striker more often than not an individualist? Are all wingers a bit free-spirited and creative. Do you have to be a masochist to play goalkeeper? Full disclosure, I am a former goalkeeper and I'd have to say yes. And beyond that facet of the discussion, are people's personalities or psychologies what draw them to those positions or do the positions foster those attributes in players? I realise it's a chicken and egg problem but would love to hear your take on it. Have a wonderful day and keep up the great work. That's uh, from Lauren. So what would you say, Chinch, is the best way of describing the kind of person that makes a left-back? Um, I find it very interesting because actually the four of us, considering the positions that I presume we all play, I think our characters maybe suit our positions. Would that be fair to say? Well, I've already mentioned that I was a right back come right winger, so therefore an untalented right Yeah, you're more, right of a, you're more of a, you're not really dependable, reliable, as Steve is as a right back. I think that's, again, perfect position for you. Good distribution, good, good eye well, for a pass. Yeah, I you're, pushing, you're pushing it a bit there, Steve. But anyway, athletic I see what you're saying. To, yeah, athletic yeah. enough to make the overlapping run. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So you're Gary Neville, I'm David Beckham. Okay, let's continue. Yeah, yeah to a degree. And, and Rory is that kind of um, free spirit that you need in the middle of the park. He just needs to be just given his, just allowed to talk and play. That's basically just a child. 
In essence, he, just a child. He's Jack Grealish. That's, I think, suits you. Yeah, and not, not as good as Jack Grealish, I wouldn't say, but maybe he's someone who thinks he's as good as Jack Grealish <laughs> and should be given the licence to play like Jack Grealish. That's that's the kind of, again, that, is that, would that be fair, Rory, would you say, in terms of your footballing position? I, I yeah. <laughs> You're not reliable enough to play he's, he's centre half it. or anything, are you? Because you'd want to, you'd want to step no, out to be, from the back no, to and be, do all that type of thing. To be you? fair, I am. Um, he's tall. I was always, I was always a midfielder or a striker, but I did play, I did play centre half in spells during my my illustrious career, and actually, I think I might have been quite good at it. Yeah, but it didn't feel right, did it? You, you feel no. you're better. You're better than that, aren't you? I, I thought it was it was a, a it was grunt work for grunt it's been, people. Exactly, it's yeah. been so again. Certain personalities fit certain positions. A and left the, back. It needs to be a bit of everything, I would say. Resilient, have great quality, great energy, understand the game perfectly. Probably why I had such a long and successful career. But yeah, you do need to be. I was never, I played in midfield kind of wide on the left for a bit, but I knew I was not a wing. You did in a cup final. No, I was just another left back. We had two <laughs> left backs, basically. I was not an, uh, I didn't have a trick. I couldn't even step over the ball. I couldn't have it. I didn't have anything. I wasn't that type of player. I was. I needed the ball in front of me with lots of pitch in front of me. Would, then I was okay. Would Paolo Di Canio ever have been a left back? Would Benito no. Carbone no. ever have been a left back? Absolutely not. No, not just in terms of their, but just their, their yeah, it, they're too good and they can influence a game far more than I ever could. But they then probably wouldn't want to do I loved occasionally taking a ball in the face and blocking a shot. I did generally, it didn't happen a lot, but I did like making a sliding tackle on, on a really sandy surface against Egil Ostenstadt to keep the score at nil-nil against Southampton. Um, I liked that, but I don't think certain players, Rory wouldn't have, have scraped all the skin off his thigh, would he, making a, a sliding challenge against Egil Ostenstadt, would you? you you'd want to be, you want to be drilling cross-field passes, don't you? At least, ideally, as, yeah, at least I, as a yeah. centre back or a converted centre back, he didn't have to chase back, which is something that was required of him. Yeah, but he wanted he'd want to step across and just to. take the ball away, like Alan Hansen, you know, effortlessly and elegantly. You wouldn't want to slide in and hurt yourself, would you? It just doesn't strike me that that. Oh no, how this, you are. this is this is harsh, Chins. Like I, I, I enjoy a sliding tackle. No one, no one likes really? a sliding tackle more than me. Maybe not on Astro. Maybe maybe not on Astro. Because but... it, it stops you from having to run. That's no, why you like the sliding it, tackle. Yeah. No, it's just anything. I like anything that's got a bit of kind of glamour to it and there's a standing tackle is glamorous it suggests that you have you have read the game correctly it's um although also you've been terribly out of position yes exactly that's yeah. normally that's the case yes yes you haven't read the game correctly which you, romantic which you idea. would do with your with your vast intelligence which is so the chicken and the egg then which comes first if you are a diminutive if you're ariel ortega are you going to ever be anything other than a number 10 and Who? which which happens first El Burrito, uh, the, I think your personality type, I think it's, it's probably a bit of both, isn't it? That, that certain types of players are seen as having the right personality to play in certain positions. I suspect that, but then equally you'll get some players who are drawn to, if you are more creative, you will want to play in one of the more creative positions. But that could be left back or right back, depending on your physical capabilities. So what about... Yeah, but, like if you physique is, in, is an important part of it you you center backs are limited by height for a star um and i think forwards to an extent so you could have a, a forward who loves kind of the physical side of it but if you if you're five foot seven that's not really going to work is it you can be a physical forward if you if you're vout red horse and you sit foot six but if you're and equally, if you if you want to be a winger, but you're Jan Collar, not gonna happen. But you can be Ian Ormondroyd and still be a winger. That's true. Yeah. Well, yeah. exceptions to the rule. 
is it a sliding sliding scale of sort of selfishness that the more there are (laughs) there are places for the selfless footballer and equally there are the more, more selfish you are the more you move up the pitch yeah I think so. yeah, yeah 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 that sounds yeah. about right we- and the, the final point then uh, a final point about goalkeepers because there is a little bit of a cliche about goalkeepers and we've got neville southall as the example that we most uh, regularly quote on this uh, podcast and uh, was he the kind of person that you would see spread out all amongst oh careful i'm going with this <laughs> all, all around the league are they are, are they all nuts or uh, do you have some sensible ones no neville was uh he was very much a one-off, but he, we did occasionally play uh, five-a-sides where he, he actually came out and played as an outfield player in a five. And he was like, just like a raging bull. <laughs> he, he, he wanted to hurt people more. And he could actually, he was very good with his, but when he played, he just, I think he just wanted to get his own back on lots of people who'd <laughs> smash shots at him. And he just used to go around splattering everybody. And he was, and he used to wear his gloves and that as well. You know, playing as an outfield player, why have you got your gloves on? And he's just clatter people. But he could play. But I, I don't know, centre half maybe. But he was just, he was just a goalkeeper, wasn't he? His, his, how he, how he was wired, how good he was, his, his training, everything about him just screams goalkeeper. And many more the- kids, many more kids now seem willing to go and play in goal than they did when we were younger. It's, it's clearly got a bit more glamour. It, but Either that, those, they're lazier kids, aren't they? That's it. It's just standing around. They yeah. like to wear a pair of tights in that as well, which is always a bit worrying. Well, you've just used the phrase that I think it's because they get the opportunity to say in net, I'll go in net. It's my <laughs> turn in net. I think it's because it's got its own buzz phrase now. So they're willing to do it. The other thing I never understood about goalkeepers is why at the end of the game, they don't immediately just take their gloves off. That some of them continue to, like, for example, in a final and the goalkeeper is the captain, they'll lift the cup <laughs> with their gloves on. Which makes no sense in terms of actual purchase on the trophy, which is of some value, emotional. It may be a sponsorship thing that they have to get their. Ah, that's what it is. It's like Roger Federer. Yes. But do you you remember? Was it Adrian at West Ham taking a penalty in a shootout and taking, and it it proved to be the decisive, decisive Mm. penalty. I was there. He took his his gloves off beforehand and threw them to the floor as though. I'm not going to need these again. It was the <laughs> ultimate demonstration of goalkeeper confidence. It's all about the balance. If you haven't got the weighing down of the gloves, you don't know where you're kicking. Uh, to all of you, thank you very much indeed for all your emails. Uh, do, I suppose it's just at, l- at least a reminder that if you do send one, even if it's three and a half years later, we might just get around to it for a completely trifling conversation uh, about it for three minutes on a mailbag episode. Uh, so do keep your correspondence with that in your mind to Coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and view as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory, and Andy, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. What is the lunch that has been brought to you, Rory? It's not been brought to me. I just oh, I, I need to go and find out what there is for lunch. That was, that was my mum saying, you've been in my house for ages and not spoken to me. What are you doing? <laughs> is it pate and port? It, probably not pate and port. No, as a general rule, I will be given a toasted sandwich. Is your oh. is your is your parents' house so big that it's like pubs at the moment? Is there a QR code system where you where you <laughs> scan the QR code, let them know which table you're on, and you place your order? This is my parents' house is a normal, quite quite spacious house. It's not, it's not. By, by standards that have been set. By no, so the, it, it's not percentile. It's not my my house. My parents' house actually is probably very similar footprint wise to Chinch's house. Yeah, compared to the Borgias, it's a fairly small affair, isn't it? You say it's it's not so much the house itself; it's the land. That's where the oh, they're landed, <laughs> are they?
He's the land. Oh, land. He scanned the code, selected drawing room, and started perusing the menu. The, uh, uh, the one thing I can assure you, no matter how large my parents' house house may, may or may not be, they certainly do not have an, an like a digital ordering system. <laughs> I had to teach my mum how to, like my mum my mum got a new phone because she she was worried about the NHS out not being able to get it to kind of prove that she's she's been vaccinated. So she had to get a proper smartphone, and I had to teach her that the whole point of it is that you just have it on all of the time. You don't like turn it off and then turn it back on to see if someone's contacted you. You have it on so that people can contact you. <laughs> My parents still go on the internet. Yeah. You'll say to them what you're doing this evening. They'll say, I'm going on the internet. As though it's an event, like they have to prepare for it. Do you know what I mean? Like they put special internet gloves on that might be something else. <laughs>